Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my huge pleasure to be joined on the G-Word today by Dr. Misha Kapuszewski, who's the CEO and founder of GeneStack, which is a company that helps life sciences R&D companies um, manage their data and build exciting uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence models. We're going to dig into all of that. Misha, welcome to the pod. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Brilliant. And so, Misha, give us a sense of you know how you got into this field, what drew you to data and analytics and the intersection with kind of biology and genetics and so on. How did you get here? I've always had an interest in biology. And uh, the, the original intention, funny enough, was to become a biologist. And um, when I was uh, in high school, and uh, I went to high school in, in, the, in America, I got uh, the opportunity to you know, work in the summer in a lab at Harvard Medical School where it was an internship and, you know, I was doing very basic things, you know, like, you know, growing plasmids and, uh, you know, running PCRs, which is, you know, kind of, uh, we hear a lot about the last couple of years. I, I thought you were going to say pushing trolleys and, uh, you know, stacking shelves, but <laughs> doing PCRs is uh, not bad for a school kid. <laughs> well, I mean, my, my, uh, I, had a, I had a project. Uh, the project was, um, so the, the lab that I was uh, with was studying Xenopus which is a, uh, a South African frog. It's uh, frequently used as a uh, model organism for studying embryology. One of the reasons being is that they have quite large embryos, so it's about a millimeter, and you can do all sorts of neat things with it. Like you can, you know, you can inject uh, substances into the embryo. You can watch it in terms of how it develops patterns. You can build a lot of, a lot of our understanding about how our body is formed is uh, driven by studies on these Xenopus embryos. And uh, at that point, roughly around then, uh, an important signaling pathway, an important set of genes that interact with each other uh, was discovered, uh, the so-called wind signaling pathway. And uh, it's uh, turned out that it's important in at least two major areas, this, this pathway. Uh, it's important in determining how your body is planned, you know, polarity and, uh, you know, kind of where the arms and the legs go. But it's also a key pathway in a large number of cancers. And uh, at that point, a lot about this pathway was known. People knew some uh, important parts of the pathway. So a receptor was known for fruit fly, but it wasn't known for frog. And that was my project, to, uh, to try to identify and clone it in the frog. And the way that one does it is by uh, using, at that point, PCR. So we knew the sequence for this receptor in fruit fly and I think in uh, mouse, maybe in a couple other organisms. And uh, the challenge was to identify some of the DNA, some of the sequence that is common to most organisms to identify conserved, that's what we call pattern stretch of uh, DNA 
design a probe that is a uh, you know a small artificial piece of uh, of that sequence, and then you know kind of go fishing into the frog genome using this PCR reaction, which is exactly like the uh, COVID test works, right? I mean, we know the sequence of the virus, and then we go fishing in the uh, uh, saliva sample for that piece of DNA. So the idea was to see if we can fish it out using this probe, and then sequence what we found. Anyway, so there I was in this lab, and we had the challenge of, you know, design the, uh, the probe. And uh, so the sequence for these other organisms was published, was in a database. And uh, in this lab, we had a, one computer, and this computer had some software installed on it. Uh, and uh, that software uh, said that it can design the probe for you. You can run what's called an alignment, you know, put next to each other the sequences for this gene from other organisms, and then identify these areas of conservation. And so I remember that uh, the guy who run, ran the lab said, well, I can do it by hand. And I said, well, look, I, I'll use the software, and we'll see which probe works better. Human, human versus machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, funny enough, um, his probe turned out to work better right. uh, than the one designed by the software. And what sort of what sort of time period are we in now? Is this like the nineties or? Yeah, this is about nineteen ninety four. Anyway, but that's what kind of inspired me to look at uh, computing and uh, programming and software that kind of you know inter inter intersects with biology. Uh, roughly around then, I also met a mathematician who came to give a seminar in this lab, and uh, and he was talking about building mathematical models on the computer, how patterns are formed, how genes interact. Uh, it was just fascinating. And uh, so at the end of the day, when I went to university, I studied mathematics, uh, mathematics and literature, <laughs> funny enough. Good combo. I did, uh, I did computer, science, computer science and medieval history. <laughs> I think it's always good, always good to mix it up. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And um, when I finished university, then I spent a year at Oxford doing mathematical biology as a uh, visiting graduate student, worked in a couple of startups. And uh, right around 2001, I remember uh, reading about uh, microarrays, which were at that point one of the first uh, technologies that offered the ability to measure in one go, not you know one or two genes, which was what I remember doing in a lab, but tens of thousands, you know, obtain a measurement on the genetic activity or on the presence or absence of a gene in a, uh, in a sample, but not for one, but for tens of thousands and cheap. And uh, that felt, uh, you know, transformative. And uh, I was working, you know, I was living in Boston. I was working in a software startup, nothing to do with science. You know, it was kind of the dot-com era. It was exciting. You, you know, I learned programming. Uh, I used programming to, you know, pay for part of my university education. So it was kind of natural. Let's let's go and do high tech. And then I remember reading about this. I was like, yeah, I, sh I should go and do this. And uh, I ended up sending, you know, just two CVs out uh, and uh, got a job at the European Bioinformatics Institute uh, here in Cambridge. Uh, came to Cambridge for a three-year contract. Twenty years later, I'm still here in Cambridge. I worked at the EBI for in total of close to twelve years and. Uh, when I joined the EBI, I was a programmer. When I left, I was a, uh, a team leader running a, a functional genomics team. Uh, we were building tools for the scientific community. We were organizing what originally was microarray data, but uh, that technology eventually uh, got superseded by sequencing data, 
similar idea, but uh, more precise, uh, eventually even cheaper. And uh, after this uh, pretty long period in academia, some of the tools that we were building, I noticed were addressing needs uh, beyond academia. It was obvious that uh, the volumes of data are only growing. The, the challenges in terms of organizing data and uh, bringing data from different sources and different types of biological data are only getting greater. We were you know, entering into collaborations with other hospitals, with uh, pharma companies. And so I saw a, an opportunity there to, to help out um, more people around the world. And that's what led me to start this company. Anyway, so that's the, that's the uh, long story. Cool. No, no, well, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Tell us a little bit about which kind of people you're trying to help do what with the technology that you develop at uh, GeneStack? Sure. So the, the overall uh, mission and the overall purpose is um, the way that we think about it. And that's you know, what I thought about the company what, 11 years ago when I was conceiving it, and that's you know, still the case today, is how do we use data to improve lives? And uh, when we talk about you know, who are the people who use data, if you were to ask 11, 12 years ago, I had in mind you know, two very kind of special groups, right? I had this in mind, a kind of a bioinformatician, because I knew them, I was working at a bioinformatics institute, and then I had in mind a biologist, right? Because at some point, I almost became one. And so I had this, this idea that you know, we need to help biologists make the best use of all the biological data that's being produced, and who is there to help them is the bioinformatician. So that was the, uh, the model back then. I think that uh, you know, today, it has really expanded far beyond. You know, the, the, the first major expansion of you know, who are the people who use data was when data scientists came on the scene. So people who build algorithms and who bring you know, advanced mathematics and who work with data to very rapidly build understanding and knowledge. But the, the, the notion of biologist as the kind of the consumer of this knowledge has also expanded. And I think today it's everyone. You know, we are... Uh, you know, data producers. You know, we, we're walking around. We are, uh, you know, producing data through you know Fitbits. More and more of us are uh, participating in various programs where we have access to our genetic data. You know, you can have, uh, you know, your 23andMe account, or if you have a pet, you know, you can have like a, I know there's a, a 23andMe type uh, thing for dogs. You, <laughs> you can, you know, there's Genomics England. You know, so I, I was one of the first people who were enrolled in the gel program, you know, there are national genomics programs all over the place. You go to a hospital and, uh, you know, for whatever condition you have, a doctor might order a genetic test uh, and uh, you might end up with a, you know, kind of an, an omics type of data. And so the, the challenge of, you know, how do we interpret it has uh, grown from, you know, a very narrow section of people who are, you know, kind of these, these bioinformatics elite uh, onwards to biologists, to data scientists. Uh, it has really encompassed a very broad area of life. Yeah, so there's that sort of democratization process, right, where things that used to have to be done by hand become automated. So then people can think about, you know, the the, the more human questions and, and fewer of the technical questions, right? So some of the, I guess, applications that or jobs to be done, so to speak, so that people would be doing this for bringing together all of these different data sets, building models on top of them to try and explain what's going on or find find new insights. I think there's a couple that would be good to explore. One is precision medicine, 
you mentioned about someone going to a doctor to get a test you know what kind of data sets are involved what kind of insights are generated and then i'd love to think about like uh drug discovery um again you know what who's who's doing what so if we think first about precision medicine what kind of data sets are your clients or your collaborators kind of working on and what kind of questions are they trying to answer i can even maybe tell you a couple of stories so one of them is us working with a uh, a hospital in uh, in manchester there is a national uh, aspergillosis center and aspergillus is a, uh, a fungus it's it's a Pretty interesting one. For one thing, Aspergillus is, uh, you know, black mold that we see in uh, maybe less than sanitary bathrooms. Uh, it's also used uh, industrially in the uh, uh, production of uh, foods and uh, sometimes medicines. And most of us live with it. You know, we don't notice it. The, uh, the, the spores are in the air. If you have it in the bathroom, you don't tend to notice maybe. But it also causes disease. And uh, what's interesting about it is that it uh, can cause two very, very different kinds of disease. In some people, it will cause a very, very uh, strong allergic reaction. In other words, your immune system goes into overdrive. Yeah? And uh, if you um, have asthma, it, in some people, can make it uh, significantly worse. But in some people, this same microorganism causes uh, invasive disease. It will invade uh, tissues. It will live in blood or in the lungs. And that means that your immune system does not respond, right? It can get through the immune uh, response. So the same organism in the same uh, host can cause very, very different uh, disease. It's a pretty bad disease. There is a, uh, a very high mortality rate. And uh, the, the treatment is expensive. Some of the, uh, the, the drugs that are made for it are very expensive. And uh, so it, it was interesting to kind of try to understand how does this work? What, what makes this uh, tick? And so this hospital in Manchester where they have a lot of patients from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, they wanted to get a, build an understanding uh, what is it in this organism that makes it cause these different kinds of disease and what makes you know, most of the population uh, resistant, but some of the population get the, uh, the invasive disease and some of them have the allergic disease. And so uh, a cohort of patients uh, was assembled, so several hundred individuals for whom uh, their genetic makeup was analyzed, so what genomes and how they differ from each other and from the, uh, the general normal population. And uh, so one of the challenges was to try to identify what is it? Are there mutations that make one uh, susceptible to disease? Are there mutations that make one susceptible to one type of disease versus another? Is there something in the genome of the, the pathogen of, of this uh, uh, spergillus itself that makes it go either way? Um, so that's the kind of data sets that get generated. So what you can see is that the data set has a uh, clinical part to it. So diagnosis, the, you know, the, the individual, let's say, age, sex, and uh, what kind of disease they got, how they got on with it. Then you've got the genetic. And uh, nowadays, you also generate diseases that have other types of biological data that uh, come with it. But that's an, an example of a data set. And so there, the, the question would be, let's actually pull all of these different data sets together, the kind of clinical data, the, the genetic data, maybe some, you know, RNA or like proteomics or something. Um, and then we're just going to ask lots of questions of the data, right? And I'm guessing that once you get to 
so many different variables like does this person live in a um you know high deprivation area or or not do they also have diabetes or not do they have a high bmi low bmi um and and what variants do they have in which genes it, it kind of gets beyond the human brain's ability to kind of hold all of those things at once right absolutely yeah and one other challenge that you see with this is that uh because it's a uh, it's a disease that's relatively rare, and because it can uh, kill people very quickly, uh, to build this understanding, you need to have a fairly large cohort, because there are so many variables, and which makes today the challenge uh, even greater. Because what you need to do, you need to collect this data not from one place, not only from you know Manchester. It's great that Manchester we have this in the UK, right? This national center. But even that might not be enough. So you need to kind of look more globally. You need to have these kind of greater populations. So uh, it's not just a matter of just getting data from one place, you know, have one data set, a bunch of files in one folder. But now you need to think about how do I bring this type of analysis from multiple centers together? And prob probably all under different jurisdictions with different data sharing laws and different... <laughs> exactly, yeah. So how do I... How do I solve the mathematical challenge of identifying, right? You know, which variant causes which disease, uh, but do it in a form where I can access multiple data sets, right, and uh, abide by the, uh, the the challenges of bringing data together. You know, sometimes it's impossible for legal reasons. Sometimes it's impossible for very physical reasons. You know, data sets are big; it's hard. So th th those are the kind of more modern challenges, but also opportunities. Absolutely. And I guess if you're someone who has been diagnosed with that disease, you're very happy that this uh, this work is going on, right? Because you have a much, hopefully a much better uh, outcome. Oh, absolutely. Super. So, and then if we think about the, you know, you mentioned that there are some therapies available for this specific uh, example, we've just been talking about the black mold and so on, but there are, there are so many diseases or conditions where either there is no therapeutic or there's only a very expensive one um, or um, whatever. So there's this constant um, you know, attempt to find new drugs and therapeutics. The pharma industry has this kind of challenge around productivity you know, at a global level around the rate of failure and the, and the cost and time involved in trying to develop new drugs. Maybe help bring this to life for us a bit, sort of if I'm a, a small biotech or a team in a big pharma company and I'm trying to find um, a new drug to treat a particular condition. What kind of data sets am I going to pull together? What kind of process am I going to go through? You mentioned um, functional genomics earlier. You know, what does that mean? How does that play into um, this this field? Just sort of talk, talk us through how people would use data and uh, you know models to try and solve some of those questions. Sure, sure. So, in general, when uh, when we talk about uh, drug discovery, there are multiple stages to that process, and for different types of these different types of drugs, they vary somewhat. But in general, the process uh, looks something like this, right? So somewhere you need to have uh, an understanding of what disease you want to cure and some understanding of how that disease works. In other words, you need to identify what is called a target. So you need to uh, identify what, maybe it's a gene or a protein or something in the organism, that you have somehow identified that if you change it, then the course of the disease changes. And you, know, you prefer that it changes for the better. So that's a very early stage that's called target, right? And then you need to identify what you are going to uh, attack that target with. And that might be a molecule 
or a uh, you know an antibody or something, right? So, so you need to have these two pieces. That that happens at the very early stages of drug discovery, and then after you've identified those two, then you have many many other stages before it can get to the clinic. Then you need to identify you know does your compound that you've identified does it actually work uh, in a laboratory setting? Does it work on a model of your disease, maybe in a uh, in a cell line test tube, right? Or maybe in a model organism, in a mouse? Is it safe? Is it efficacious? And then, then it can get to the, the clinical stage, and then, then it can go into humans. And then, but we, but we have this, you know, clinical trials. You know, does it work in human? Is it safe? Does it have the desired effect? Does it have no side effects, and so on? And uh, at every stage along the way, you use different kinds of data, and you produce different kinds of data. So, for example, to uh, identify targets, you need to have a uh, very good understanding of the disease, right? And you need to have a uh, very good understanding of the genetics that uh, form the background to the disease. And so the kinds of data sets that we use is uh, a lot of data that's collected from healthy populations so that we have an understanding of what healthy looks like. And healthy is not, you know, one uniform thing. It's a, uh, it's a whole collection of different kinds of behaviors and different kinds of data patterns, and then different kinds of disease data sets. And, uh, and there is a wealth of data in the public domain that, that we use, uh, data on uh, genetics and data on uh, gene activity and data on protein activity, health records. And then there is data that's generated within uh, the biotech industry, within pharma. So that's Kind of an example of data that's used in the target world. But then in the uh, identifying the compound, then you have a lot of data that's from the chemistry side, for example, right? You have data on different kinds of compounds, different kinds of drugs that have been previously developed, how they behave, what their formulas are, what their activities are, what their structures are. And the data on, on the chemistry side, the, the data around compounds, what does that sort of look or feel like? I think people probably have mental images in their mind of like one of those 3D representations of a molecule, maybe with like blobs and like sticks holding the blobs together. <laughs> like help, help us like bring to life what kind of data sets are we talking about there? So I think that um, it's not a bad place to start the, the, the structure because uh, at the end of the day, when you build a, a drug, at the end of the day, you need to have your structure, right? Uh, and so this uh, this notion that we have the sticks and uh, balls, you know, figures or the kind of the the lines and uh, drawn, uh, that's a good place. But uh, what we also need is all kinds of properties of these molecules. So we we talk about the the size of a molecule, its weight. Uh, we can talk about its uh, electric charge. We can talk about uh, how it behaves uh, in different um, cells, whether this molecule, what kind of what kind of class of a molecule it is. Um, and the reason why we care about all of these things is that uh, in order for a molecule to be a potential medicine, it needs to have a you know, certain number of attributes, right? It, you, you need to be able, for example, to deliver it to the, the right uh, place in the body so that, you know, you, you may need to uh, put it in a certain formulation, you know, is it going to be a liquid or is it going to be, a, you know, a pill? You want it not to be too big so that it can get into the cell where it needs to go, right? Um, if it has a, you know, certain um, 
uh, properties that will make it stick somewhere. Uh, maybe in some cases you like it, maybe in some cases you don't want that property. So you look at various kinds of properties of these molecules. Very cool. Um, and you mentioned earlier about toxicity. I was talking to someone else about this recently and their, their line was, you know, there's a very, very fine line between a medicine and a poison. <laughs> you know, People are starting to build models around predicting toxicity and so on. How can we understand something about toxicity from the kind of data sets that you've talked about from like structure or other characteristics that it might have or whatever? So one of the kind of traditional uh, ways of looking at uh, toxicity is um, by uh, running a, a, a very simple kind of experiment. It's, it's called a, a dose response experiment. You take a controlled system. So maybe again, it's a cell line or um, a model organism. And you have your um, compound, your molecule, that uh, you want to identify its uh, toxicity profile. And uh, you titrate the dose. So you start treating the cells with different doses. You end up with a curve. If you imagine a, a plot, then on one axis, you'll have your dose increasing in small steps. And there are other variables, of course, you know, how long you expose the cells to this uh, medicine and, you know, what kind of your treatment regimen. But on the other axis is the response. And how you measure the response is really, really interesting because there are many different ways of measuring response. So it could just be, you know, how many cells survived. Uh, or you could measure something else. You could measure how, how the size of the cells or, you know, what kind of um, response they produce. Or you could measure genetic response. So, for example, you could look at uh, what genes become active. Yeah? And so... This immediately gives rise to a very rich data set. And that's, you know, we haven't even started considering the fact that you can take this molecule and look at its various uh, modifications, structurally or otherwise. So those are the kinds of data sets that you look at. So you have these curves, and then you can run different kinds of mathematical analysis to try to identify at which point does this curve jump, you know, into where you don't want it. So you want to, the curve to generate a response that you are aiming at, right? That you wanted to, for example, kill the... Uh, six cells, but leave the healthy ones alone. So you, you want to look at the kind of inflection points in this curve. Got it. So it's a constant kind of trade-off. Like, you know, we want to, uh, I'm struggling for a metaphor here, like we want to grill the steak, but we don't want to set the house on fire. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah, that's a good one. Got it. And so I want to take us all the way back to like 1994, kind of human versus machine. In that instance, you were looking at a particular um, setting in the in your kind of internship. You know, fast forward to 2022, and there's a lot of talk about you know machine learning, artificial intelligence um, being deployed to try and um, solve some of these problems um, in a way that humans um, haven't been able to. There was recently, for example, the amazing success of DeepMind's um, AlphaFold 2 model in predicting uh, protein structures, which was an incredibly kind of thorny uh, scientific question. How how are we seeing machine learning and artificial intelligence being deployed in this kind of uh, area? And, um, you know, should we be super excited? Should we be a little bit excited? Should we be, is there anything we should be nervous about? That's a, that's a great, uh, great question. So with machine learning, I think that uh, there are parts of um, what we as uh, humans, uh, problems that we as humans have tackled that are extremely amenable to machine learning approaches. Challenges like uh, classifying things, right? Or uh, given a lot of data, making a prediction about the next step in that data. And uh, 
I am you know, super excited about machine learning being able to tackle those. I remember you know, when the uh, you know, paper came out, uh, this was just before you know, AlphaGo beat you know, the, the world champion in Go, but the, the program learned uh, how to play chess in five hours. And so you know, that's an example of a kind of problem where machine learning is really good at. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. And I think that you know, we are, we're yet to see the kind of the range of problems where machine learning can help. And uh, you know, it's, it's exciting to see that uh, there, you know, in the past, we've always thought about machine learning that you need to have a mountain of data right, to generate a uh, prediction. But nowadays, we see that there are ways to use, if you will, you know, previously processed mountains of data to you know, do learning on much smaller quantities of data. So I think from that point of view, I'm super excited, as I said. Um, what I think is what many people fear is, you know, will this uh, obviate the need uh, or the role of the human? And, uh, you know, should humans be, you know, kind of fearful that, you know, we're no longer going to be needed, that, you know, we'll just have a program that will, you know, solve everything. And, you know, what, what are we all doing, you know, here in, you know, the, uh, the, the science and the drug discovery setting? And there I'm actually, you know, I'm more optimistic. I think that uh, the role uh, of uh, AI should be the assistant to human. And I think that there remain, will remain, you know, challenges where either the data is, you know, too noisy or where you need, you know, kind of a creative approach to uh, identify the direction of pursuit, where, you know, having this kind of artificial intelligence assistance to be able to test different kinds of hypotheses, to be able to, you know, explore many avenues where there is a lot of power. So I don't think that the, the kind of the role for, for the human brain is uh, done for, but I think that there is a, a lot to be excited about. I spent a chunk of time earlier in my career kind of doing manual data reconciliation, data entry, and so on. So maybe we take some of that uh, that heavy lifting away from uh, early career professionals and give it to uh, AI models, which is good for everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. At, at the end of the day, you know, you know, it's 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 still you know kind of eighty percent perspiration. That's one of the kind of the uh, inspirations for starting this company. That you know we wanted to kind of do away with the boring stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so we're in a world where we're generating more and more data every day. We're increasingly getting a handle on how to kind of wrangle that into a way that's you know useful for answering questions and moving some of these things forward, like drug discovery and personalized medicine. If all goes well, where would you like to see us get to in, I don't know, the next kind of 10, 15 years? Like what difference could these kinds of techniques make to normal people kind of um, in the street, so to speak? Well, it's not a uh, kind of complete kind of let, let's you know settle uh, uh, Mars type of vision but I'll I'll tell you this what I think is we have observed over the last let's say 10 15 years was uh, a lot of uh, attention to rare disease and uh, a lot of if you will reconceptualization of cancer as a collection of rare diseases and uh, if you look at the the investment that has been made into these areas, it's been quite big. If you look at the kind of the, the, the plot of, you know, top 10 killers versus, you know, kind of by, let's say, cost to the healthcare system versus investment, then you'll see that, you know, cancer, for example, is a huge outlier. What I think would be great if uh, we as a kind of humanity turned this type of attention to other diseases. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, um, you know, diseases that are very heavily associated with aging, like dementia. 
diseases like respiratory and heart, where I think the investment has not been as big over the last few years. Uh, and the understanding, therefore, I think is lagging. So what I, th what I would be excited about over the next 10, 15 years is if we could use the kind of learning and experience we've been gaining from looking at uh, rare diseases and cancer and turn it to these diseases that affect huge swathes of the population and uh, about which the understanding, I think, right now is not at the same level and uh, nor are the treatments. So I think that that would be, a, uh, I think, a great progress. Yeah, for sure. And rare disease and cancer have been focused on, I guess, particularly in genomics with the much clearer link between a given gene or a sort of number of genes and like the outcome. And, you know, as I think you're sort of hinting at there, like the, those techniques have struggled to explain areas where there are much more complex uh, interactions between like tons of genes and environment and so on. But hopefully, as we, I guess, as we build analytical muscle in kind of rare disease and cancer, we start to be able to take on more and more complex uh, relationships and understand what's going on. And I, and I do think we are on the cusp of that. I, I do think that there is, you know, certain critical mass of uh, uh, experience that has built up. Fantastic. Well, that is a that is a good uh, a good picture of the future to uh, to probably wrap up with. Misha Kapuscheski, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the pod, explain some of the exciting work that, that you and others are doing, and um, all the best with your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris, and good luck to you. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.